start. Um, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Wallerstein. So we'll go right into it. Um, earlier this month was the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, what do you think is the legacy of this historical context or event in terms of international security since the end of World War II leading up to the Cold War? I think it's impossible to consider how the Cold War unfolded without thinking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I'm not sure, of course, how things would have been if things had gone differently, but uh, it's pretty clear that the use of this new type of weapon, um, the way it was used, which is to say against uh, cities, um, and then the amount of credit it was given uh, towards ending the war, uh, dramatically influenced uh, how many states thought about weapons, science, war, the role of technology, um, and so on. And these um, sorts of ways of thinking about it were foundational to what kinds of armaments they developed, how they spent their uh, resources, what kind of relationships they developed with other states. So I, I would say it's one of the most consequential events in the 20th century. Wow, that's uh, something to note moving forward. And um, as a follow-up, um, what kind of consequences are we expecting moving forward in the 21st century that we are currently in as the armed race is you know, continually advancing with um, very few signs of sufficient restriction? And another question would be, do you think it is a safer world that we are living in right now? Um, I think whether it's safer or not depends on where you are uh, as a, as a fairly safe answer at any given point in history, but um, I, I think that the long term, let me put it this way, I think if we look to how arms races played out in the 20th century, what we would expect to see with the current trends going forward are uh, some moments of uh, great danger, great potential instabilities arising. Uh, we would expect that various nations at various times who are participating in this will feel extremely vulnerable. And when nations feel very vulnerable, they sometimes do very risky things. Um, I think we can also, if we are extraordinarily optimistic about the whole thing, we would conclude that the best possible outcome of it is that uh, our nation and the other nations participating will spend an immense amount of their resources in order to essentially maintain something like a status quo, okay. which personally I find kind of depressing because <laughs> these are resources that all of these nations could be spending on other things that would lead to potentially a healthier and safer and happier society, but instead we're going to be spending them on security that is at best going to preserve the situation that's been in place for quite some time, which is to say a situation in which uh, for these nations that are competing, the, the threat of war and the consequences of war will be too high in principle to risk it. Um, so I'm not very optimistic about the arms race. <laughs> I don't think it, it leads to much advantage, uh, and I feel 
bill that if it was possible to avoid it, uh, we could put those trillions of dollars uh, into better usage uh, for a society. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair. I mean, I think that's a fair uh, sentiment to have. See, with the current climate of uh, international relations, um, but going back a little bit, you mentioned resources. Um, in various lectures of yours about nuclear fission reaction, um, you mentioned the core argument for non-proliferation surrounds the access to materials, um, spe specifically to plutonium and uranium, right? Right. So it seems these efforts have been ineffective in a way when it comes to discouraging getting access to these materials for different various nations. So do you think there is an efficient or great or agreeable method to hold these countries accountable, restrict these resources from getting, uh, restricting these nations from getting these resources, or is there something that you envision? I think that it, the track record is, it's somewhat mixed. I mean, obviously there's more nuclear nations than one might want, but it's not as large as it potentially could be. It's still a relatively small number, nine nations or so out of 150 or whatever there are. Um, I think that when we look at making these kinds of things work in the world, it requires international cooperation, treaties, agreements, things like that. And it requires those to be entered into in good faith and requires those to be... Um, Uh, carefully monitored and not just politicized and things like that. And the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I think it's done a, a reasonably good job or as reasonable a job as you could expect. Um, and, you know, since it was signed, the only nations that got nuclear weapons were ones that either didn't sign the treaty and were outside of the regime and through various ways developed them. And some of that was with help of people inside the regime, like uh, in the case of Israel, France, in the case of Pakistan, China, people like uh, uh, that. Um, it's also the and, and and you could imagine there being some kind of repercussion though at the time neither France nor China were actually part of the treaty regime um, and then the only other state is North Korea which is which left the regime and it did so because of breakdowns in negotiations and things that it perceived as being bad faith um, agreements with the United States and feeling very threatened. Um, I feel like we could use this to create a, a sort of template for what do you need for this to be successful. <laughs> um, wow. I, I think that the, the, I think the United States has not done the best job um, in terms of uh, keeping countries sort of that are maybe not, that are not our allies, you know, mm -hmm. so North Korea, perhaps Iran, for keeping them within a regime that benefits them at the same time it benefits us. We have a temptation to, and it's not just the current administration, this goes back, but we have a temptation to want that all of our dealings with these countries to be sort of disproportionately benefit to us and not beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. And that leads these countries to uh, not irrationally decide that these deals are not for real and that the United States is just trying to be hegemonic and we don't really back that up when we threaten war every time somebody doesn't cooperate with us. So I think we could go into this with an idea of 
really trying to keep, say, Iran from not producing a bomb, mm-hmm. the way to do that is not to threaten them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that, it's the threat that makes these countries think that the only thing they could do in, to, to possibly maintain their sovereignty is to develop nuclear weapons. If you want, so which is, uh, sorry, which is to say the material aspect of it, the control of fissile material, mm-hmm. uh, the fuel for the bombs, that's the sort of prerequisite for, for making sure that a country really doesn't have a bomb or can't have access to one. But the only way you can make that work is if you join it with a sort of diplomatic approach so that they aren't trying to fake you out and they aren't trying to, they don't think the whole thing is just a means uh, for regime change by other means or something like that. Uh, and it works really well with countries that aren't trying, you know, we've done a really good job of convincing many of our allies not to pursue nuclear weapons, yeah. uh, even though some of them have wanted them at times, South Korea, uh, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's been a number of countries that the United States is very close to who have thought about getting nuclear weapons. And we've done a very good job of making it clear to them, no, you don't need them. Uh, your security will be guaranteed without them. Your lives will be easier without them. You'll have all these access to better benefits without them. I think we need a similar approach when we talk to our enemies about this. Uh, we, anything that makes nuclear weapons seem like the only way out for them is, is going to go against our goals on this. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting point that you raise about the power dynamic and how uh, the leadership, at least with the United States or um, the Russian Federations with their, or even China at this moment uh, with their nuclear weapons. So I'm I'm curious I'm curious about in what kind of rhetoric would these leadership have to do in terms of you know they need to. In- encourage more cooperation instead of just threat like you mentioned earlier so how would would that be conceivable we've had times in which we were not uh in quite as negative a dynamic with these countries as we are today and i think those can give us some uh insight into what it would look like uh but yeah um with Russia, for example. I mean, Russia has a lot of issues, and I don't want to make it sound like Russia's acting in good faith, because they're, they're often not. Um, but they appear to have concluded uh, after the 1990s that basically the United States was interested in, in sort of total domination of them, and that we uh, as a country were interested in sort of humiliating them and that the only and that we were interested in getting into positions in which they would be extremely vulnerable mm-hmm. and it's hard to convince somebody of a negative to be sure you can't go to the russians and say no no we don't believe any of that we're your friends that, that won't be compelling right mm-hmm. but if your actions don't line up with what your official rhetoric is, then it's they're going to look at your actions. So what are our actions? We um, uh, work to expand NATO a lot closer to their borders, which makes them very uncomfortable, right? Yes. We, uh, uh, we, we ended up uh, developing um, 
ballistic missile defenses and putting them very close to their borders, which we will say very loudly, and we did for most of this time, say, oh no, Russia, that's not about you, that's about a country like Iran, and it's just a coincidence that we're putting them near your borders. And maybe that's true, but you have to see that the Russians aren't going to take a chance that maybe that's true. <laughs> and now we're even more explicitly saying things about Russia and China with their ballistic missiles, and so uh, ballistic missile defense. And so that's even more likely that they're not going to take seriously anytime anybody says something that makes it sound like we'd want to be more cooperative. So um, are there ways to go forward on this? Sure. But they would involve making concessions. They would involve us saying, okay, we're willing to not do something that you find provocative if you'll not do something we find provocative. They won't always be easy negotiations because some of these things for us are, um, you know, deal breakers. We're not going to, you know, give Taiwan to the Chinese, right? That's not going to be a possibility. Uh, but that's, you know, but I, I do think that there is a, probably a lot of room for dialogue there if we're willing to, um, uh, if we were willing to curtail our own arms races and things like that. What I find kind of amazing is we're willing to spend far more than they are. Our, our military budget is far larger than that of Russia or even China. China's done quite a lot to try and catch up in that respect. Um, and, and with no end in sight on spending. I mean, every year it's we need more. And at the moment there's, there's, uh, neither of the two presidential candidates are arguing about any kind of cuts for military stuff. They're both saying the spending's still going to go up. So we have a sort of consensus across both political parties that more military funding is the answer. And it's very hard in that kind of situation to imagine not, you know, on, on what basis would Russia or China believe us if we said we were not in anticipating these kinds of things. And my sense of it, and this is just from what I've read and, and from things I've listened to officials say, my sense is that the, the, the military in particular is totally fine with an arms race. They see this as very beneficial to their own interests. They see this as a, basically a prestige booster and it gives them more resources and that gets you promotions within their own sort of system. And uh, I fear that they have more influence on this policy than they really ought to because they are not, they're, they're, their job is not the job of negotiation <laughs> or, or diplomacy. And uh, I feel like our policies are not enjoying, we, we are not giving sufficient weight to uh, negotiation. So, anyway, is it possible to imagine? Sure. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight at this point. Oh, but, definitely. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I think essentially it goes back to we need a lot of cooperation and dialogue, but we lack the political will. And I think that's somewhat unfortunate. Well, somewhat can be, a under, can, can be um, underrated. However, so you mentioned the arm race because China is um, on the way to match the United States in terms of um, military budget. So do you think there is a possibility for um, um, re reenactment of the Cold War moving forward with China? I mean, it, I think that there's a lot to be said for, it, it wouldn't be, China is not the Soviet Union in many respects. Um, and so it's not an exact analogy, 
but they are approaching the sort of economic power and potentially at some point in the future, the sort of military parity that the Soviets had, um, though not in exactly the same way. So, for example, the, the, the Chinese nuclear arsenal is much smaller than the American one. They have maybe 300 nuclear weapons. Um, uh, that, that, that's a very modest arsenal, and it's intentionally modest. Um, they have other capabilities, though, uh, that, that may sort of offset that, or you might argue that 300 is enough to match in the sense that it's enough to uh, it's enough to deter any sort of American war with China, or, or at least make it seem uh, uh, a lot more risky. Um, I do think that there are efforts. I think that the, that the goals of the Chinese are to be the, the sort of next big superpower and to potentially be sort of the superpower. I I think they see America as being on the decline. I think they see the last 200 years of Chinese history as being an aberration and in which, you know, they were much weaker than the the West. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, will that play out in the same way as the Cold War did in the 20th century? Probably not, um, just because they are a different type of people and they their goals, I think, are a little bit more subtle. The fact that the United States and China are so economically intertwined changes things dramatically from the Soviet situation. I mean, the United States can barely imagine functioning without Chinese manufacturing. That wasn't the case in the Cold War. And that sort of stuff does matter for how countries are going to interact and what kinds of options are going to be available to them, as we've already seen with some of these trade war things. That's uh, that's also something to consider. Um, but I think I want to, I think, dive deeper into the point where you were making earlier about the military's very favor of, you know, keep expanding the budget. And in in one of your lectures about how involved President former President Truman was in the bombing of Hiroshima or in Nagasaki, and it proved that he had little input or little understanding of what magnitude that could have made. So I wonder if the secrecy sentiment still do we still have that within the current climate of the military? Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, we still have a lot of secrecy. Things are different than under Truman's period um, in terms of how the funding dynamics work and what the issues are. Um, the the role of the, say, the Department of Defense has changed a lot over the years and the role of Congress in these things. But I do. I, I think we sometimes focus overly on the president, and I'm not excusing any current presidents or or, or any past ones. Um, they do matter, and their priorities do set quite a lot of the stage for things. But for example, a lot of the defense funding. That's not because the president necessarily pushes for defense funding. That's because Congress writes it into these big omnibus bills that are sort of seen as must pass because if they don't pass them, then all of, you know, our military gets defunded. Um, and that's politically uh, and practically unacceptable. If, if, if our situation is whichever parties control Congress 
can throw in as much funding as they want, and there really isn't any way for a president to not pass that funding politically, then we're going to end up, you know, in the same position, even if you had a president who was very much against it, unless they were really, truly willing to, to have a huge political fight on their hands. So these are structural aspects. I, uh, this is the kind of thing that um, Eisenhower was talking about in his farewell address when he talks about the military-industrial complex. It's not so much that it's like bad presidents or even evil military or anything like that. It's structural factors whose sort of culmination makes it extremely politically easy to keep spending more and more money on certain types of armaments and incredibly politically difficult to reallocate those funds to something more pressing. Oh, the system seems to uh, have enabled that to prolong for a very long time. So, But, um, again, I just want to end this uh, interview with the questions about the usage of nuclear energy going forward. Because as we saw earlier this year with the explosion in Beirut, Lebanon, or eight years ago, Fukushima, or further with Chernobyl, um, do you think a world with nuclear energy is possible or will we keep seeing these um, incidents happening because of the just because we need the energy I, I think that you can have nuclear power uh, generation without um, high likelihood of accidents and without um uh, you know, other sorts of dangers that can be associated with it. However, you have to design a system that gets you that outcome. And um, some of the systems that we've had in place, uh, including in the United States, but also the one in Japan and definitely the one in the Soviet Union, um, were, had uh, structural defects that... Um, increase the possibility of risks, increase the possibility of things going wrong, and increase the sort of political problems. So, for example, nuclear power plants are very expensive. Um, that's just a sort of fundamental aspect of, of, of them. They're much more expensive up front than most other types of power sources. So if you're a utility company and you're being forced to, uh, in, in a free market type of situation, and your choice is between um, putting up a bunch of coal plants which are, or, or, or natural gas, which are relatively cheap, um, and you can have them up and running in a few months, that sort of thing, or investing uh, several billion dollars into a nuclear plant which may get up and running after several years of construction, plus a bunch of lawsuits, plus then you've got to run it at basically high capacity for the next 40 years to turn a profit off of it, and that's assuming that the market for electricity is about what it is at the moment you do it, and it doesn't, say, get a lot cheaper because of new natural gas reserves being discovered or something like that. You can see why in a free market system, you're going to tilt away from nuclear almost by default, um, and that's a lot of what we've seen in the United States uh, since the 1970s is the economics have been very much against nuclear power. If you add to it the, the idea then that any nuclear power that you do produce 
any plants you actually build, you're, you're going to have this profit motive uh, at the back of your mind at all times because you're cutting those margins very thinly. This creates a situation, and this also exists in, in Japan to a, to a degree, um, where you, you're the there's a regulatory difficulty there. The more regulation you're doing, the harder you're cutting into that profit motive, and so you're gonna have a lot more temptation to cut corners. Um, and that isn't necessarily the safest thing to do. If, by contrast, your priority is on generating safe carbon-neutral power, you might conclude that nuclear power ought to be a service and not something that needs to generate profit. So imagine a, a, a not-for-profit version of it, or even imagine one that actually costs money, so it's a, it's a net loss of, of revenue, but the benefit you get from it is a massive social benefit in the sense of uh, you're, you're less dependent on carbon and things like that. And so that's a different idea about what kind of, say, economic structuring you'd put in place. You wouldn't worry as much about uh, efficiency in that scenario. You, you'd put a higher priority on safety and reliability. Um, we can design the systems we want. These are our countries. Um, and there are some systems that are going to be much more dangerous than others. The Soviet system, for example, was a very dangerous one for reasons totally unrelated to the profit motive, right? They, had their, mm -hmm. they did not have a profit motive, but they had all sorts of internal bureaucratic motives and quotas and things like that, which led them to adopt a very dangerous reactor design and then to do these very dangerous experiments with it, which led to Chernobyl. And that's a sort of function of the sort of structural system in place. What I always tell people if they ask me if I'm pro or anti-nuclear is I say that I'm not either of those. For me, it depends on what kind of system are you putting in place, what kind of reactor are you putting in place, what kind of regulations, you know, how are you going to determine where they go. There's a lot of variables there, and some of those I'm actually really comfortable with and saying, yeah, that seems like a decent idea, and some of those seem like terrible ideas. I wouldn't want a Chernobyl reactor, you know, next to New York City. That's a very bad idea. Obviously, nobody's proposing that, but I'm just giving that as an extreme example. No, it depends um, on the factors. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you could go either way with this. Uh, I think that when, when I, I think a lot of people would like it if nuclear was the answer to climate change, because it seems like a very simple one-stop sort of solution, and I think a lot of, especially very techie people, like the idea that we'd be saved by this technology, um, but uh if you run the numbers on how many plants you'd need to put a real dent in it, it's massive. It's much larger than most people realize. It's, you, you would have to uh, uh, increase the global amount of nuclear power plant constructions by you know, an order of magnitude over the next few decades. And I'm not really sure I politically or economically see that happening. It, to, to get enough power plants to offset even the, you know, 1% of the warming or one degree of the warming, you're talking about a trillion dollar investment. Oh, wow. And we do have these trillion dollars, <laughs> um, but we're gonna be spending them on military armaments instead. So this is why I'm not that optimistic that this is gonna happen, but we could imagine it, but I'm, I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> Well, there's something to be hopeful yet not so hopeful about, but these are wonderful insights, and thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wallerstein. No problem. Happy to talk. Thank you.